0: But I'm gonna speak tonight about anxiety from the experience of a professional counselor, but also some personal experience, Uh, and then prior to my um, livelihood as a professional counselor. Awesome. All right, I'm gonna get better doing this tonight. Um, So, and then also working previously at youth ministry and then pastoral care ministry prior to that. Um, So tonight, I can get this on. Cool. Um, We're going to look at four different questions. What is it and how it reveals our hope? God's response to anxiety is an invitation. Some tools for managing anxiety and how we can support each other as we experience anxiety as the family of God. And so the very first thing I'm going to look at here is this question of it's not the screen I wanted, but anxiety beginning with hope. And so when we think of anxiety, much of what we think about initially is that anxiety is primarily about stress, or about worry, or about fear. And one of the things that we often don't think about is that it actually begins with hope. And so what I want to just begin to highlight this evening is a pastoral definition of anxiety, is that anxiety is fear, that what I hope for will be thwarted which impairs my ability to slow down and surrender. I'm gonna say that again. Anxiety is a fear that what I hope for will be thwarted, which impairs my ability to slow down and surrender. Anxiety becomes clinical when this state leads to a chronic, overwhelming, and repetitive state of paralysis or stuckness. And so I'm gonna just give a couple of examples here. of uh, uh, typical or more common anxious thoughts that we would have. Um, starting in the early childhood, when I walk into a school, what if they don't like me? Continuing on to walking into church on a regular basis, what if they don't like me? Um, am I knowledgeable enough to do my job well? Uh, maybe imposter syndrome. Uh, is it possible that my spouse will cheat on me? Will we have enough money to pay for our bills for retirement? Uh, for medical needs, um, I'm afraid that that needle is going to hurt. What if something bad happens to my child? I'm afraid I'll get sick. I might get COVID. I might get cancer. Um, these are common anxieties that uh, we have. And so if we reframe these statements, what you'll notice is how hope is always a necessary precedent to anxiety. So we can say these things differently. I hope that they want to be in relationship with me, or I hope that they like me. I hope I'm knowledgeable enough to do my job well. I hope that my spouse is faithful. I hope I have enough to take care of our needs and our wants. I hope my child will be safe. I hope I stay healthy. Notice that when we reframe our anxious thoughts, we see the anxiety is doubt that what we hope for might not come to fruition. We believe that something might threaten what we hope for, and this leads to an internal, visceral state that tells us we must do something in order to protect what we hope for. Proverbs 13, 22 puts it this way, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Anxiety might be said, The potential for hope to be deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. So how does God respond to us in our anxiety? Um, I'm going to read a passage here. Um, God's response to our anxiety is an invitation to be with Him, It's an invitation to presence. And I want to look at Luke 10:38 through42 Jesus and his disciples were on their way. He came to a village where a woman named Martha and her sister Mary opened their home to him. Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to Jesus and being in his presence. And while Martha was distracted by all the preparations that needed to be made, Martha came to Jesus and asked, "Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself?" Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one, and Mary has chosen what is better. It will not be taken from her. I want to emphasize here how Martha comes to Jesus from a place of anxiety and frustration. Jesus' names her anxiety, meeting her exactly where she is, telling her she is worried and upset about many things. She is anxious about the preparations that need to be made, and in hope for whatever vision that she had had about hosting Jesus, coming to fruition is being thwarted by Mary's inactivity. She has hopes for her time with Jesus being a certain way, and when that is threatened, she moves into anxiety and anger. She then seeks to control the situation, which we see when Martha demands of Jesus to make Mary help her. I actually think that all of us here can relate to this at times in our lives. We all are tempted to take control. So I'm going to just go through kind of this pattern. It says, anxiety attempts to take control. So we start off with a hope for something. We encounter a potential for our hope to be thwarted. We experience the fear that it won't happen, which then leads us into anxiety and anger. And so we move into trying to control our circumstances. In this place, one of the questions that I think we have to ask ourselves is, is my hope, so now that we've gotten back to hope, is my hope congruent with God's hope in this situation? Because God says that ultimately we will have to surrender control. How does Jesus respond to Martha's demands of him? He has already called her by name and so personally told her that he knows what she is experiencing. But then he gives an invitation and a rebuke, telling Martha to stop her preparations and to surrender her hopes. Jesus invites her to surrender control in in his presence sitting at his feet, as Mary did, so she can experience the fulfillment of all that she hopes for in him. When we struggle with anxiety, we receive an invitation from Jesus to be with him in this place. One of the things that I think many people will hear in these words is actually a condemnation or a sense of guilt. And I think one of the common themes actually in scriptures is actually an invitation. And so I want to just go through one of the things that actually Evan said here, and I'll go through just a couple of verses that talk about this. We come to Jesus with surrender. Um, surrender, right? And so in these verses, we hear an invitation to cast all of our worries upon the Lord. First Peter 5, 6 through 7 says, Humble yourself before God. Cast your worry on God, because God cares for you. Philippians 4, 6-7 is written from prison under the threat of death, and it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I think Paul was writing this from the perspective of having regularly cast his fears upon God. In other words, when we do experience anxiety, God is inviting us to throw our burdens onto him. It makes me think of going and casting a fishing rod or grabbing a heavy bag and lobbing it somewhere. So in these moments, God says, I know you're going to have this burden, throw it on my back. God is constantly saying that the weight of what we worry about is actually too much for us to carry. Jesus even says, carry it one day at a time. God never intended for us to carry our weights alone, and we are not able to cope with it by ourselves. For as Jesus said, in this world we are definitely going to have trouble, and we are definitely going to have pain. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus knows that we will feel anxious and troubled. He does not say in these moments to double down and crank it out, but rather he tells us to stop what we are doing and sit with him in a posture of surrender on a daily basis. So one of the things that we are asked to do is to slow down and to hand our worries over to God each day. So how do we do this? Surrender requires for us to slow down. Managing our anxiety depends on slowing down each day in order to be able to reflect on the things that we are worrying about in order to be able to hand them over to God. So why is slowing down so critical to encountering the presence of Christ? Um, Because without slowing down and handing it over, our chances of Jesus carrying that burden with us is much, much more slim. Um, Jesus is waiting for us to say, carry this with me. I'm going to take a few moments just to look at um, anxiety in some people's lives, what it looks like at maybe a more clinical level. Uh, I know as we're talking about anxiety tonight, we're talking about kind of both a universal experience of anxiety, which could potentially look like a symptom of anxiety, And then we also can talk about a clinical level of anxiety. And so I think that this will give us a a little bit better picture of clinical level of anxiety as well.
1: you truth like I never have before. Whether that's an easy truth or a hard truth to swallow, I've become in love with the truth. It was hunting season. Woke up in the morning. 4.30, 5 o'clock. The woods are still. No birds chirping. The trees aren't really swaying. It's just silence. And you know, silence can be a very painful place. I was already in a very anxious spot in my life. I thought everything was going to be okay. It was just another hard morning. But the feelings of hopelessness and fear and the silence kind of consumed, and slowly I became debilitated. I wasn't in control of my body anymore. And in my brain and my mind were this very foreign place. This, this vision that I was consumed with was the most. Tormenting thing in my brain and my mind that I've ever had before—it was—it was like I was in hell. I thought I knew what to do in this situation, but this was a whole other level of panic, and I slowly began to pass out. In the midst of panic, in the midst of an anxiety attack, you know. That's the result of your thinking, and that's why we have to really protect our thinking.
2: When our amygdala gets turned on and starts firing stress hormone to help us cope, those hormones flood our frontal lobe, and our frontal lobe is responsible for being rational. But it gets turned off because it gets flooded with stress hormone, and so your brain is in like a stress map, basically. If your amygdala gets turned on too often, it means that your body is perceiving threat even when it's not there, and that's what an anxiety disorder is.
1: Anxiety disorders are the most common mental health problem in the U.S. right now. About 20% this year will suffer from an anxiety disorder. And then the anxiety disorders have the earliest age of onset of any mental health problem. A typical age of onset is 10, 11, 12 years old, Whereas something like depression, the average age of onset is actually more in your thirties. So anxiety really tends to strike at a young age.
2: My very first panic attack was in sixth grade. I still remember it to this day. I was in the cafeteria and I had my peanut butter and jelly sandwich and The anxiety hit me. I'm literally like, what's going on? Am I getting ready to die right now? I remember sweating, shaking, and trying to catch my breath. And I guess because I hadn't really been taught about mental health in any kind of a way at that point, I really didn't even know how to verbalize to anyone what was going on. I just knew that I feel really bad right now. I mean, I think the anxiety comes from a place of fear. A lot of my triggers do come from traumatic experiences, but then the strange thing about anxiety is that Sometimes there is no trigger. Sometimes I'm having a great day, and boom, out of nowhere, my body is sending off this fight or flight response. It doesn't matter how perfect of a life or how perfect of a situation. If there's a chemical imbalance or something in your brain is firing incorrectly, you're going to end up with anxiety or any other mental condition. So what's the difference between mental illness versus just a simple symptom? And
3: the way I look at it is, how is it impacting my daily functioning? Is it impacting my work, my sleep, my relationships? We all may experience anxiety or something like that, but is it starting to interfere with things that are important for my day-to-day
2: functioning? Human fear makes anxiety tricky. If someone has bipolar, it's like, oh, this is definitely, like, a clinical thing happening. We know more now about the brain. We know this is definitely happening in their brain. Fear and anxiety are harder because, like, everybody's is afraid. And then some of us have anxiety disorders.
1: I would experience the heart race and the sweating, the heart palpitations because of an illusion of fear because of creating these scenarios in my mind, people not accepting me and liking me, and I actually had just a, a period of yelling at God like with all my heart and soul. I really do not wanna speak those words out of my mouth. Seth, yeah, I have a problem with anxiety. That happening because I cared so much about what people thought of me. And I didn't really have permission and the safety. I didn't give myself the permission and the safety to confess that to people. And, but in reality, that was an illusion because people would love me and accept that part of me. Everyone has something that's eating at them, everyone has something that they're trying to overcome and conquer. I just realized one day I've been bullied a lot of my life. By fear and anxiety. And I've allowed the bullying to continue for way, way too long. And so it got to the point where I was like, man, yeah, I'm, I'm telling people, like, you know, like, confessing. Like, I'm, I'm letting people in. This thing is going to get exposed. This thing, this thing is going to get hit by a lot of light that it's never seen before.
0: So just wanted to give a little bit more in depth because I think a lot of us know, um, we have two kind of different perspectives on anxiety. Probably we know people who have anxiety or we have the experience of having anxiety. And I think that we can give a little bit of a perspective, a little more, a bit more of an in depth perspective if we're kind of the people who know other people who have anxiety, right? And so one of the things I wanna talk about is what is the clinical intervention that I Ironically, the drug interventions all overlap in some ways with the spiritual discipline uh, called slowing. Um, So I wanna talk tonight about uh, some of our uh, practices or interventions. Um, You'll see on the handout there that i put in-pocket coping skills and out-of-the-pocket coping skills. Um, I'm gonna do a little bit of explaining. When somebody comes in to see me for anxiety, one of the first things that I'm doing with them is explaining how their emotions are um, increasing the levels of distress. And so I'm creating awareness often by working with them to scale the intensity of that. And so then I'm teaching them what I would label as in-the-pocket coping skills. In-the-pocket coping skills are skills that people can use at any moment during the day. Um, And so many of those things are things like deep breathing, um, things like progressive muscle relaxation, sorry, Thank you, Evan, getting this volume down. So so the deep breathing. So when we think about what's happening during anxiety or an anxiety attack, our brain is racing, our heart is racing, blood is leaving the stomach. It's actually going to our biceps. It's going to our thighs. It's leaving our fingers. It's actually leaving our toes. Uh, We're engaging the fight and flight sort of response. And it's also shunting away from our prefrontal cortex. Um, and so when that starts to happen, we become actually about 10 IQ points on average
2: less intelligent. Um, and so when we think about how we want to respond in
0: the moment, we, we want to actually slow down so that we can actually engage more wisely with other people. And these are strategies as we become aware of the anxiety that is increasing within us. Uh, that can be used just to slow down moment by moment. The second part of the thing on the list are actually out of the pocket coping skills. Out of the pocket coping skills, I like to think of as rhythms and rituals um, that are helping us to decrease our baseline. And so let's say if I wake up on average and my baseline is about four or five on a scale of one to ten, and I probably should explain the baseline with the numbers. I like to scale, um, typically with my clients, on a scale of one to ten, with one being really calm and 10 being really distressed. Um, some people will use a scale of zero to 100. Um, you can probably get a little bit more nuance in that. Um, I find that it works just fine to do the one to 10 most of the time. Um, but let's say I'm waking up and my levels of distress are about four or five, and I'm practicing these rhythms or rituals, we can find that the baseline levels can decrease by a couple of points, and so that can be I'm waking up and I'm exercising, even though I don't want to. And then I find that it actually, maybe the next day, I'm I'm waking up, and say, okay, I'm feeling better. I can handle this a little a bit more. Slowing down then positions us to be more likely to surrender and to be pre- to Jesus and to be present both with Him and with others, because we are better able to hear God's truth being spoken in love to us. like Jesus spoke it to Martha? It is much more difficult to experience the presence of the Lord when our thoughts are racing or we feel that our breathing is accelerating, our hearts are beating out of our chest. We can more readily experience God's gift of not being alone in our anxiety. And that is God's invitation for us to not be alone as we carry these burdens. God does not promise to eliminate the reasons for our anxieties or fix our circumstances but he does tell us that he will never leave nor forsake us. The anxiety that we experience has the potential to really be something that leads us towards Christ and the comfort of the presence of God. Psalm 62, 5 says, My soul, be quiet before God, for from him comes my hope. So what I hear in there is that there's actually a moment of anxiety and he's telling himself to slow down before God because he remembers that his hope is from God. When hope deferred makes our hearts sick with anxiety, let us look to Jesus. Psalm 39, 7 says, And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My hope is in you alone. So now I want to look a little bit about how we as the church can support one another as we wrestle through our anxieties. Galatians 6.2 6, commands us to carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Proverbs 12.25 says, Anxiety weighs the heart down, but a kind word cheers it up. In other words, anxiety is a burden that weighs our hearts down. And one of the things that we can do is speak a kind word to those speaking with anxiety. An interesting thing about anxiety is that it has a contagious quality to it. It wants to invite others into it to worry about the world in the same ways that we do. We see Martha doing that as she demands of Jesus that Mary join her. Have you ever been around someone who was really anxious and found that you also responded to their anxiety? in a way that also ramped up your own. When I picture Jesus responding to Martha and her anxiety, I see Jesus being able to resist this temptation to join Martha there. Jesus was calm in the midst of her anxiety. Jesus was grounded, Jesus was anchored and able to engage anxiety without becoming anxious himself. For from the depths of his own calm presence, he offered calm and peace to Martha. When Jesus responded to Martha, he also did not try to fix any of the things that Martha was actually worried about at that moment. He did not make Mary help Martha with the preparations, nor did Jesus nor did Jesus help with the preparation himself. He simply calls Martha to sit. This is the same initial call that Jesus makes to us. He calls us first to sit with him. It reminds us that we were not to be alone as we experience our fears. Jesus reminds us that he is the one who calms our storms. Often what people need in their anxiety is a calm presence. Just as anxiety can be contagious, so can a calm presence. This kind of calm is not always easy to offer in a relationship but I think it is one of the um, things that people get the most benefit out of in therapy, is that they receive a calm presence. So how can we do this? This kind of calm really comes from anchoring truthfully ourselves in Christ, and then inviting others to do the same with us. I want to also point out that I have found that there are three common temptations, at least three common temptations, in the face of somebody else's anxiety. So I'm just gonna go over those. I think in the face of another person's anxiety, we actually can be tempted to try to fix it. That can actually temporarily work and then usually makes it worse a little bit later. Two, we can respond to it by dismissing their experience. That can be very invalidating. And three, we exert our own control often through anger. Very rarely do these responses help us to meet that person struggling with anxiety where they are, or provide them with any sense of relief. And if you have ever been anxious on the other end of things and been responded to it in these ways, you likely have stories of what that has felt like. What if, when we were to see another person struggling with anxiety, we really saw them as Jesus saw Martha? Like Jesus, we can call them by name and invite them into the presence of God. When we do this, we invite them to slow down in the midst of their anxiety, and we offer to co-cast their burdens on God's shoulders. In other words, we pick up the weight with them, and we throw it at the same time. When we do this, we are also slowing ourselves down. Then, we can offer our presence first, and then we can engage from a place of wisdom. What does this person actually need for? This might mean something actionable, such as fixing something. It might mean gently inviting a shift in perspective with regards to what they are worrying about, or perhaps speaking the truth in love. Sometimes we face the things they fear together, as God is working to cultivate Christ-like confidence in them. I want to encourage us all to understand that our struggle with anxiety is a struggle ultimately about hope, Let us gently invite each other to slow down and surrender control by entering into the presence of Jesus, who is our one and only true hope. So I'm going to go ahead, we're going to transition to discussions. You have um, questions on the table, there's about five or six uh, questions to go through, and I think you could... Um, I would say maybe groups of about three or four uh, at each table if you wanted just to go through those questions. I probably would spend about three or four minutes on each of those questions. Um, I'm gonna close this out. I have a little bit of an image I would like to give to all of you as we finish up um, before we pray. I'm gonna close with an image from Prince Caspian by C.S. Lewis. In the book Prince Caspian, there's a part of the story where Lucy witnesses Aslan. Standing on the hill, he immediately tries to convince her siblings to follow him, but they did not believe Lucy, as they did not see Aslan for themselves. The next night, Lucy is awoken by Aslan himself and is told to wake up the others and to convince them to follow him. When the whole party was finally awake, Lucy had to tell her story for the fourth time. Neither Peter nor Susan were able to see the great line, so they did not believe Lucy that Aslan's presence was real. Do lie down and go to sleep, Lucy, followed by, don't talk nonsense, Lucy, is all Peter and Susan could say to their sister. But Lucy musters up the courage to convince her siblings to follow her blindly through dangerous terrain. After listening to Lucy's plea for them to follow the invisible Aslan, Peter begrudgingly agrees to follow her, and the others do so as well. Aslan, at this point in this story, is still visible only to Lucy, and he leads the group to a quick, hidden path to the Great River. At the point of crossing the river, Edmund is finally able to see Aslan. And then Peter, not much later, just as they reach the stone table, Susan is able to see Aslan as well. When the group finally witnesses Aslan for themselves, Peter and Susan apologized to both Lucy and Aslan. Aslan glided on before them and they walked after him. Lucy, said Susan in a very small voice. Yes, said Lucy. Susan says, I see him now. I'm sorry. And Lucy says, that's all right. Susan says, but I've been far worse than you know. I really believed it was him. I mean, he, yesterday. When he warned us to not go down to the firwood, and I really believed that it was him tonight, when he woke us up, I mean deep, deep down inside, or I could have if I would have let myself, but I just wanted to get out of the woods, and oh, I don't know, and whatever am I going to say to him now? Perhaps we won't need to say much, suggested Lucy. As Susan confesses to Lucy, you can hear, hear the worry and anxiety in her words. Aslan then stops his march and greets Peter, Edmund, and Susan. Hush, say the other four. For now, Aslan has stopped and turned and stood to face them, looking majestic. They felt as glad as anyone can feel who feels afraid, and as afraid as anyone can who feels glad. The boys strove forward. Lucy made way for them, and Susie and the dwarf, Susan and the dwarf, shrink back. Lucy, who's already had her turn with Aslan, moves aside for her two brothers, who are excited, though a little ashamed, perhaps, that they can finally see Aslan and greet him. Aslan's first words to each of them. To Peter, he says only the words, my dear son. To Edmund, Aslan says, well done. It is important, of course, what Susan, who can't see Aslan now, does when she has the opportunity to greet Aslan. She steps back. She is worried and afraid. Not surprisingly, Aslan greets Susan differently than the others. Then, after an awful pause, the deep voice says, Susan? And Susan made no answer, but the others thought that she was crying. You have listened to fears, child, said Aslan. Come, let me breathe upon you. Forget them. Are you brave again? A little. Aslan, said Susan. When Aslan turns to Susan, he says her name, which makes her cry. And then Aslan offers to Susan the same invitation of presence that Jesus offered to Martha. Aslan similarly names Susan's anxiety, just as God is naming yours. You have listened to fears, child, he says. Come, let me breathe upon you. In the presence of God, our fears can wash away God offers his very breath in the midst of our fear. Think of how close in proximity God must be to us to be able to feel his breath. The Lord is so very close to us. Aslan breathes on Susan, then asks her if she is brave again. And Susan is so honest. She says, a little Aslan, a little more brave. The presence of Aslan and the Lord Jesus is the very breath that we need to slow down and surrender. The beautiful thing about Aslan is that a little turns out to be just enough. So I'm going to go ahead um, and close this in prayer. And for our prayer tonight, um, I'd like to read Psalm 91. Whoever dwells in the shadow of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely you will save me from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. You will cover me with your feathers, and under your wings I will find refuge. Your faithfulness will be my shield and rampart. I will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys it at midday. A thousand may fall at my side, but it will not come near me. I will only observe with my eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If I say the Lord is my refuge and I make the most high my dwelling, no harm will overcome me. No disaster will come near my tent. For the Lord will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all of your ways, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone, you will tread on the lion and the cobra, and you will trample the great lion and the serpent. Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. And I will be with him in trouble, and deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Amen.
3: just so helpful. I mean, anxiety is so common to man, and it can feel debilitating at times. And even in a Christian environment, it can feel um, uh, like this is something spiritually deficient. Like, why don't I have more faith? God is with me. Um, but to, to have that, that space to say, this is actually common to our experience, and that's something that we can, we can lift up to the Lord continuously as a posture. So thank you for helping us to see that, Eric. Uh, so this is uh, the end of the second of three uh, city fellowships. Right. So the third one is when. On third. On the third. Yeah, third one's on the third. Yeah. <laughs> Not gonna forget. Um, so I hope you will come. Uh, as much as I love the topics and uh, the, the speakers that we have, have been great, uh, what, what I really feel is precious is this opportunity of coming together. Uh, folks that you might not have ever met before, or maybe you haven't seen in a while, and just the gift of your presence. Like that, that is what's really beautiful about this time. So I really hope that you will plan to, to gift us with your presence and also engage uh, further in, in this, these topics. So next time, uh, we'll talk about loneliness. And so as a church, we've been reading The Loneliness Epidemic. Um, so, if you ha- haven't heard about that, I would encourage you to, to get that book and read that. Uh, you, you don't have to read it to be a part of City Fellowship, it is, but it will be one of several reference points for our time of discussion uh, when we meet again. All right? So, hopefully, to, I will see you there. Um, so, I'm going to say a word of prayer for us and uh, let you all have a good rest of your evening. Lord God, thank you for uh, this opportunity to be together. To see one another, be seen by one another. I thank you for using your servant Eric to help us uh, to see uh, the reality of anxiety, but also to, to normalize it and uh, to see where you you work with us and you're near to us in it, uh, even if you don't uh, automatically uh, immediately remove it. I want to thank you that you are near to us in our fears. So would you help us to let go more and more of the things that we try to control out of fear and to cling more and more to you and abide in you and bear much fruit. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. One final thing I want to say, um, you know, if if, as Eric was sharing, it's like, wow, this is really hitting home and what I'm experiencing feels pretty unmanageable, I would encourage you to reach out to his counseling practice, pottercounseling.com because uh, there's just wonderful clinicians uh, that work uh, there. And you, you might as well hand out various techniques to, to engage your anxiety, even though the links can be hard if you, if you email Eric. Uh, he can give you those links, because uh, I think they're, they're really good, really helpful, as we see to to percent. All right, have a good evening. We'll see y'all you all in another